Last time we met, we sort of rushed through the last part of chapter 13, and I, me- I, I mentioned to you that the Jews used to sometimes assign numerical values to, to letters, and they would utilize these perhaps for purposes of speaking in code. So in the book of Revelation, we were introduced to this number, kind of a famous number, 666. Even people outside of the church are aware of this number. Sometimes you'll see it in graffiti on buildings. Uh, Most people don't like this number in their social insurance number, on their address, um, and their phone number, except for my mom. Um, My mom, up till recently, her home number started with 666 and her cell number was 777, believe it or not. Okay? Now, she just recently went to cell only, so she finally got rid of her up in Ilderton, just north of London. That's where she lives, and the, all the phone numbers start with 666, so that's just the way it is. But uh, this number is, is typically associated with the, the Antichrist or the beast or some figure in Revelation. But uh, using a code... And I'll just sort of, uh, this is found in a book, um, uh, interesting commentary. I actually don't agree with uh, some of the stuff in this commentary because it tends to be more amillennial. But um, this, this commentary gives, us a, gives me a little chart, which you won't be able to see from where you're seated, but I thought I'd share it with you. And this helps us to understand w- why the early readers would have understood this as being Nero Caesar in the immediate and we, we understand that the double fulfillment is probably a reference to the Antichrist. So the system that they used was called uh, gamatria. So that's what they used. I'll just try to get a darker marker here. And they would assign numerical values to names. So they've done the work for us. Nero Caesar um, would have been composed originally of some Hebrew consonants. So this is like the equivalent of an, an N in Hebrew. This is the resh, which is um, kind of like an R. And then wow or vav, it's the equivalent of a long O sound. Doubles as a consonant and a vowel. So this would have been uh, the equivalent of N and then R and then O. Okay. So keep in mind in Hebrew there's no there's no uh, vowels, so you just get the the, the consonantal equivalents. Now you might say again, well O is a vowel. Well in Hebrew it can function as a vowel or a consonant. So they would assign the number fifty to a new or a noon, um, two hundred to this letter, and six to this letter, and then uh, Caesar. Uh, Sorry, they had a final noon down the end here. So uh, this one was assigned uh, 50. So that's an N, 50. So that's Nero, or more uh, probably the original sound would be like Neron. And then Caesar, uh, composed of a Kof and a Somic. And another race. So we have um, the equivalent of sort of a K or Q sound, 
uh, an S and an R. And the numerical uh, numbers attached to that were 100, 60, and 200. So add them all up, you have 666. So that's how they, they would have utilized this uh, system called gematria. So I, could, I think we could say with like 99.9% .9 accuracy that the original readers of Revelation would have understood that the individual in the immediate sense that is being referred to as the beast in this chapter was Nero. But because this chapter, uh, it would seem, is also tossed into the distant future, into the period of time that I believe is probably the Great Tribulation, just as Antiochus Epiphanes is sort of the, the forerunner of Nero, so Nero becomes the forerunner of an eschatological figure, probably the, the Antichrist. So... Um, at the risk of offending your romantic notions about what's going to happen in the end times, everyone's going to be walking around with a big 666 on their head. I'm like 99.9% .9 sure that is not true. But rather this number is simply going to symbolize one who is going to rule during the tribulation. So don't get yourself all worked up if this number ends up in your cell phone <laughs> or in your SIN number or whatnot. Because it's its significance as a number relates to this gematria code and relates to the first century. And in a, in a very vague way symbolizes one who is yet to come. But the number in and of itself is not a number that literally belongs to the devil any more than the number 13 does. Okay? Glenn? Sorry, just a little bit louder, Glenn? Yeah, so Glenn asked the question, would it be fair to say that the Antichrist is one like Nero? Yes, absolutely. If you look at that little chart I gave you, the great prostitute, we'll talk about, quote-unquote, her, although I don't think it's literally a her, is probably a reference to Rome in the immediate, but is Rome becomes like the Antichrist's kingdom in the future. Another example of this working backwards is in the first century, we've already discovered that Rome is often referred to as Babylon. Rome is not Babylon. That's a different nation altogether. But Babylon cryptically takes on or adopts this name. Uh, sorry, Rome cryptically is referred to as Babylon to the first century persecuted Christians. They would have understood that's Rome. And in order to reinforce the nature of that kingdom, he refers to an, an ancient wicked kingdom, which, which at the time of the first century essentially was in ruins. There wasn't much left to it. So yes, it's the idea of, of likeness, similarity. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, the book, interestingly, it also gives us um, a couple of other, I think they gave us a couple of other illustrations here. Jesus' name in Greek adds up to 888. So that's kind of cool.
Okay, so we're now moving into chapter 14. And chapter 14 is, uh, is the beginning of uh, introductions to a series of different events. So we have a lamb introduced. We have a song by 144,000. That number that we read about back in chapter 7 comes up again, but more detail is given about these 144,000. There are three angels that are introduced, and there's a harvest that is reaped. So we'll start with verses 1 to 5. I've just entitled this The Lamb and the Song of the 144,000 Virgins. One of the few places where men are referred to as virgins in the scripture. So it reads, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion. Now, where is Mount Zion? Jerusalem. So Mount Zion is near Jerusalem. In Israel stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name. So here we know that the particular Lamb that is being referred to is none other than Christ himself. Now I mention that because in chapter 13, the false prophet is also called a Lamb, but that Lamb is described differently. He presents himself in a quasi-Christ-like way by being considered a lamb-like figure, someone who's purportedly going to bring, bring redemption into your life, but he's, he's a faker. He, he's, uh, he, he's not the real deal. So this is the, back to the, the Christ lamb here. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Let's just pause there and go back and do a bit of review. What is the significance, the metaphorical significance of having a name written on your forehead? Do you remember? We've talked about this in previous classes. Okay, that would have been at a later date. But what did the Jews wear on their... Way back in Deuteronomy. Yes. So what was in it? Scriptural scrolls. And then what else did they do? What, what did they do on their arms? Okay, leather wrapped around it. So these were physical marks of... Identification. They were identifying with Yahweh God. I also suggested to you that in some Greco-Roman cults, so Greco-Roman would have been the era within which Christ and the apostles lived, that some cult figures would mark their foreheads with uh, marks of their gods. Kind of like Charlie Manson, the moron. You know him? He was in the news again today because he's going to get married to a 26-year-old. He's 80. And she thinks he's awesome. Well, what does he have on his head? He has the swastika on his head, right? And she's carved an X into her head, too. Nevertheless, um, back in the days of the, uh, the early church, different religious groups would have potentially done the same thing. 
So this is the idea of sealing, or it's a mark of identification. Now, in this context, it's probably not the case, given the language of Revelation, that these people literally had God's name written in their flesh, but it was symbolic in all likelihood of their sealing or their identification with the true and living God. So that tells us right away that whoever these 144,000 are, they're the real deal. They're true believers. They're not just saying it, but God has already sealed them with his mark. And then it says, I heard a voice from heaven like, notice that word again. It's not, doesn't mean that this is literally what it sounds like, but it sounds something like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. So oftentimes as John is trying to record what he's experiencing, it's unlike anything he's really experienced in this world. It's otherworldly. But he tries to utilize human imagery or human sounds as best as possible to communicate to us what he's experiencing through this vision. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song. Keep note of that, that terminology, new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth, which is an interesting statement. We'll need to talk about that. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Again, normally women are referred to as virgins, but these are obviously men, or at least they're referred to as men, who have not slept with women. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found. They are blameless. Now, what do we know? Let's just go back and review. What do we know for sure about these 144,000? I've written down about six bullet points. First is that they are believers marked with the father's mark. The second is they are clearly worshipers before God. The third is that they are singing a song that is known only to them. The fourth is that they are undefiled virgin men. The fifth is that they follow the lamb around wherever he goes. And the sixth is they are redeemed from man as first fruits. They are blameless and described as truthful because they don't lie. So that's what we know. But now we kind of got to go back and try to figure out, uh, what these details tell us or how they might help us to identify these, these persons. Now, again, the mark indicates that they are protected by the Father, so we can sort of check off in our list. These are, as I've mentioned already, these are definitely believers. Their suffering and their persecution is over. They are now fully in the presence of God. Uh, with regard to a new song, how, how do you think we should handle that? What, what's the significance of a new song? And it means far more than they were just really creative with lyrics, by the way. You got to go back into the Old Testament and explore this language a little bit of a new song. When God puts a new song in our heart, is it just like a new idea, a new tune? No. What is it? Any guesses, any ideas, any insights? Okay, excellent. How do we know that? Okay, but how do we know new, the idea of a new song points to deliverance? 
Okay, good. They sang a new song right after what took place, Eva? Okay, excellent. If you go to the Psalms, you'll also find the terminology new song. And it's almost always tied to salvation or deliverance or some sort of release from captivity. It could be a, an, uh, an army coming back from defeating the Amalekites, let's say. And they, they come into Jerusalem, they have this triumphant procession, and they sing what's called a new song. You find those in Psalms like Psalm 144.9. So a new song in the scripture is almost always associated with victory from battle or protection or some sort of deliverance or salvation. So what we can conclude then with a fair degree of certainty is the fact that they were singing a new song means that they were recently delivered from something. So they're now in the presence of God. They probably are the same 144,000 that are recorded for us back in chapter 7. Now in chapter 7, I suggested to you that the number 144,000 is probably a symbolic number. Just like 7 is, 12 often is. It's 12 times 12 times 1,000. So 12 units of 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. If we are dealing with a tribulation here, then probably what is going on is that God is redeeming to himself uh, a perfect number of Jewish converts during the tribulation period from all tribes. And these individuals now are in the presence of God. So we're coming now to the end of the tribulation period. We're going to get into the Armageddon event shortly. We're coming to the end of the tribulation period. These folks are now in the presence of God. They've come through a period of deliverance. They've been delivered out of the great tribulation. They're standing in the presence of God and they're singing songs of, of deliverance to God. Now, there, it, it may be that there are more yet to come because there's a couple words here that are important. It says that they are the first fruits for God and the Lamb. Uh, it also says that no one could learn the song except the 144,000 redeemed from the earth. So there may be others that are going to yet be redeemed from the earth. We're not sure about that. But nevertheless, they're standing in the presence of God and they're singing songs of deliverance. Now, I would further suggest to you that these probably aren't limited to men. And you might say, well, the language of the text kind of suggests they are men. Well, I, I understand that they are described as males, but I'd like to give you a plausible reason why that might be. Um, one of the requirements that God had upon Jewish soldiers when they went to war is that leading up to battle, they would abstain from sexual intercourse. So examples of that would be found, for instance, in 1 Samuel 21, where David is talking to his men and he, he makes mention of this, or they, they were to sort of, um, uh, another example of this would be, you know, Uriah the Hittite. When Uriah the Hittite was brought, ba brought back from battle uh, by uh, David, yes, obviously he wasn't a virgin, he was a married man, but while he was at battle, he sort of took on the status of a virgin. Why? Symbolized purity, consecration, focus on God. For them, it wasn't just war, it was holy war. So God put these laws and these 
principles in place. They were to refrain from sexual activity. And probably then what is, what is being communicated to, to us through this highly symbolic literature is that these 144,000 who'd come through the tribulation were God's warriors. That they had gone to battle uh, for the Lord uh, because it is a, a, a heavily spiritualized language here. It's probably both genders. Um, and the metaphorical number that is attached to them, again, uh, if you're a dispensationalist like myself, probably refers to Israelite converts during the tribulation, or if you're not, minimally the church triumphant. So just to summarize all of this, what we're probably, and again, uh, I, I like to use the word probably because I want to, you know, I want to be honest with you. I mean, there's, there, there are other valid views. Probably what is taking place here is this is a heavenly vision of warrior martyrs who are of Jewish origin, who have consecrated themselves to God, who are now standing in the presence of God and worshiping him, singing songs of their redemption and their salvation to him uh, and bringing him honor and glory. So, uh, that's my best uh, stab at what this vision probably is intended to communicate to us. Okay. Any comments or questions about that? Yes, James. Okay, good. So the question was, is this like a spiritual redemption or more of a, they've been removed from the earth? Probably both. The, I think the, the, the one that is probably in the, if, if I were to put one in front of the other, I think the, the one of the part about being taken from the earth is probably the, the driving force of this word. But at the same time, because they are clearly believers, we can also say they are uh, the redeemed in a spiritual sense. Good. The word redeemed can have a spiritual connotation to it or it can have the connotation of you know, being taken away from. And, and I think it's, it's a both and going on here. Any other comments or questions? Dela? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, before and after. So are you, are you all familiar with the triumphal procession of Christ and its symbolic significance in light of the Old Testament? Nod yes or nod no? Go diagonally if you're not quite sure. <laughs> Can you nod like diagonally? <laughs> so what, what, would, what would take place is... Let's say King David would ride out at the head of his forces, his chariots, his foot soldiers would go after him, and they'd go out in the spring and they'd do battle with the Philistines, for instance. And God would give them victory if, if they honored God in that battle. Then when they would come back, they would have something called a triumphant or triumphal procession. That would take place leading up to the gates and then into the walled city of Zion or Jerusalem. 
And people would come out, they'd lay down palm branches, and they'd hoot, and they'd holler, and they'd jump, and there'd be incense. And the king would come back victorious. Now, this imagery, by the way, is picked up by Tolkien in the Lord of the Rings novels, where he sort of paints the picture of the Ancient of Days coming into the city and reclaiming the kingdom from the steward, which is meant to be us, who have represented the, the king, who's called the Ancient of Days in the books, in the absence of the king. And interesting, this, the house of the stewards had sort of forgotten that they weren't the kings, right? Just like we forget this actually isn't our world, we're just managing it on God's behalf. So this is, this is the language of the Old Testament. So when Jesus then uh, rides up to the, the walled city of Zion or Jerusalem on a colt and the people come out laying down palm branches and they're cheering Hosanna to the king of kings. This is Jesus laying claim to the, the kingship of Israel. And it would have been understood. It's not just a cool story. Otherwise, you're, why would he bother doing it? Like, why ride a coal? Why have people come up with palm? Why? Because he's, under, he's living in a Jewish context and he's laying claim to the kingship just as David had done and the kings before had done for centuries and centuries and centuries. So that's why they call it, it's not the only triumphal entry of a king, but it's the, the final culmination of a series of triumphant entries from the kings of Israel in the line of Judah, right? So there, there we have it. Okay, so let's go down to verses 6 to 13. This is the angels proclaiming gospel and warning against following the beast. Then I saw another angel fly directly overhead and an eternal gospel with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. So there's 144,000 Jewish converts in heaven. There still are tribes, nations, languages, and people on earth. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, and sea and springs of water. One thing you're going to notice as you come to the end of the book of Revelation is they start to increasingly adopt the language of Genesis. And this is the language of Genesis here. You're going to see it heavily used in the last couple of chapters. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The drinking of wine is going to become a dominant metaphor in the next two chapters. And another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, pulled full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their t torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and of its image and whoever receives the mark of the name. By the way, this is, this is a proof of eternal conscious torment. It flies in the, fl uh, the face of those that preach that hell is uh, uh, annihilation. Um, I believe that hell, hell or the lake of fire is uh, a state of eternal conscious torment, not, uh, not as the Jehovah's Witnesses or John Stott would teach that it's a snuffing out or uh, an a point of annihilation. Um, 
here is a call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. So there's others. Assuming this is sequential, there's others after the 144 that are dying in the Lord from here on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. One of the few uh, few times, at least compared to God the Son and God the Father, where the Spirit is actually attributed words. But he's the one speaking here. So we have, we have announcements of judgment. The fall of Babylon is probably to be understood in the immediate as the pending fall of the Roman Empire, which sort of happened progressively over the next 300 years or so. It kind of petered out. And in the future, the empire of the beast during the tribulation. Now, who is the beast? Well, you can go back to your handy-dandy chart where we were introduced to two different beasts. The beast from the sea in chapter 13 and the beast from the earth also who takes on the form of a lamb. So I've suggested to you that the beast from the sea is probably the one known by the writer Paul as the Antichrist in his letters to the Thessalonian church and the man of lawlessness, and the second one, the false prophet. So possibly two different individuals here, both of whom take on beast-like form. But when from here forward, when it just says the beast, it's probably referring to what the one that we would understand as the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness. This announcement of judgment goes out to all nations. And I want you to note the language of the text to every nation, tribe, language, and people. I would like to propose that this is intended to be understood as the antithesis to the Great Commission of Matthew 28 because of the similarity in language. So in Matthew 28, the the text that we know is the Great Commission, Jesus commissions his disciples and says, go into what? All the world. And he kind of specifies immediate, distant, farther out, preach the gospel, baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is a commissioning of hope and good news. Here, God speaks words of woe and judgment to that same world, every nation, every tribe, every language, every people. It's great commission language. But this is the antithesis of it in the end. This is sort of the great commission brackets is the bracket on one end of the beginning of the church's ministry. And here we have language that speaks of the pending end, the the bracket on the the other end of uh, the church age. And then we have verses uh, 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 19 to 21 of chapter 16 that we need to look at as well. So go to Roman, uh, Revelation 16, 19 to 21. So we have the great city being split into three parts. Uh, the cities of the nations fall, and God remembers Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath and every island flees. We're going to talk about this a little bit later on. No mountain 
the, the mountains are, are no longer to be found. There's great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, that fall from heaven on people. And they curse God for the, uh, the plague of the hail because, because the plague was so severe. So when we look at these final words in uh, Revelation chapter 16, we have God's, the full force of God's judgment against the nations coming to pass because here we have language that speaks of the collapse of the world. Lang- mountains being flattened out, c- cities being crushed, Babylon, even uh, Jericho be, or Jerusalem being split into three. So that the curses that God delivers in chapter 14 come to pass at the end of uh, chapter 16. And uh, again, just to reinforce this point, this is the eschatological Babylon, which is in view, which would be the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of the Antichrist, the kingdom of the man of lawlessness, the kingdom of the false prophet, everything that stands in antithesis to the things of God. Very, in very specific language, in verse 8, it accuses Babylon of sexual immorality. Now, sexual immorality is often one of the most obvious marks of a decaying culture. But Babylon is being damned here not just because of its sexual immorality. Sexual immorality uh, is probably not intended to strictly refer to their sexual sin as grounds for God's judgment against them. But rather, sexual immorality tends to capture, in a nutshell, sin at its heart, which is an excessive interest in pleasure to the exclusion of God, which is really the heart and soul of all sin, excessive interest in pleasure to the exclusion of God. So Babylon then is damned, not just for its sexual immorality in particular, but for its willful rebellion against God and the things of God across the board. So we have a series of angels then pronouncing uh, a judgment. In verse 9, we have another reference to a different mark. This is the mark of the beast. So this is the those that have turned themselves over to the Antichrist, the kingdom of darkness. Again, I, I doubt there's going to be people walking around during the tribulation with tattoos on their foreheads. But in a metaphorical way, they will have succumbed to the power of this world and will be marked in in a spiritual sense of having placed themselves under the rulership of all that is opposed to the things of God. Now, uh, God, again, uses wine language to capture... Uh, an image of God's wrath. So he talks about the wine of passion in verse 8. He talks about the wine of God's wrath in verse 10. Poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Now, what I would ask is that we just hold off on trying to understand what that means until we finish up uh, chapter 14 and get into verse 15 because when we get into those those future passages, it's going to become clearer and clearer why this wine imagery or this cup imagery is is the language that God 
chooses to use to refer to, uh, uh, to the outpouring of his wrath uh, against them, okay? So then let's look at uh, the next section, verses 14 to 20. This is the final reaping of the harvest. Ever heard of uh, the grapes of wrath? A band, right? And uh, the, the, the language grapes of wrath come from the book of Revelation. And if you don't read the book of Revelation, you might think, what, what, you know, what do grapes have to do with wrath? I don't, think, I don't think of grapes in a bad way. I like grapes. So what's the deal with grapes and wrath? Well, here we discover that God uses the imagery of grapes who are being turned into wine to help us to understand how he is going to treat the, the uh, unrepentant wicked of the end times. Verses 14 to 20 is a vision of the end judgment when God will finally separate the, the just from the unjust, the good from, from evil. So there's two harvests that God talks about in these verses. In ancient times, if you were going to harvest a field, you didn't break out your John Deere combine, you'd break out your sickle. So a sickle is, you've probably seen them, maybe some of you have you know, seen them in antique shops or whatever. Basically, have a, a long wooden wooden uh, pole with some handles on it and a big curved, sharpened blade at the end. And you'd sort of sweep it across. That's how you'd, you'd cut down the grain and you'd stack it to be dried. God here uses the imagery of a sickle to help the reader to understand the violent nature of his harvesting of souls. Now, the first harvest is a harvest of saints. This is verses 14, 15, and 16. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud one like a son of man. Now, like a son of man can be taken in two different ways. This can refer to Jesus himself or it can refer to one of his holy angels. So the the language is, is fluid. It could refer to either or. With a golden crown on his head. Now, the fact that the golden crown is added helps us to interpret this particular son of man usage in all likelihood as a reference to Jesus Christ himself. Now, the only way we could interpret it otherwise is if we were to understand this as some sort of an archangel that had some sort of a mark of authority on him, some sort of a crown. But probably we're talking about Jesus Christ himself here. And a sharp sickle in his hand. And and then it says another angel... So the, the another angel either refers back to the son of man and helps us to understand that he's an archangel or the another angel refers back to the angel of uh, verse 9 or verse 8, which is more likely where it talks about another angel, another angel, second one, a third one, and so forth. Came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the throne. Notice it's always loud. They're always talking loud. We have this idea that heaven is like real peaceful, real calm. It's loud. There's a lot of loud worship. There's a lot of loud shouting and yelling and hollering. If you don't like loudness, okay, you're going to be in for a surprise in heaven because it's always loud. So he comes out, he sits on the, the, the crowd, the, the cloud, and it says, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come 
for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Jesus said, no man knows the time nor the hour. Very specific point of time in God's plan when he will bring about this. And people have often tried to guess the time and the hour and the minute, all that kind of stuff. We don't know what it is, but whenever it is, this is a reference to what's going to happen during that specific hour. So all of human history, uh, thousands and thousands of years, dozens and dozens of centuries, you know, year after year, month after month, day after day, and there's a specific hour God is finally going to bring about uh, the end of all things. So he, he comes at that hour, that, that pre-appointed hour, and the, he says everything is now ripe. Again, this is gospel language. The fields are ripe unto harvest. Go and you know, bring them in. So now the final person has been brought in. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth. It's a very, very expansive language. And the earth was reaped. This likely refers to saints being reaped as opposed to the next swing of the sickle that we'll read about shortly. And this group that is harvested is likely being harvested by Christ himself. We'll go back to the Gospel of Matthew, where we will discover similar language. Some differences, but similar language. Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30. I'll have one of you uh, read that for us. It's a parable. Matthew thirteen twenty four to 30. Read it nice and loud for everybody else. Okay, Joyce. Okay, right on. So what is the purpose of that parable? What does it communicate about the gospel age? Weeding out the bad from the good. Okay, weeding out the bad from the good to, to carry the metaphor forward. But what else does it tell us? What does it tell us about um, the reality of our own lives? Exactly. We will live side by side with unbelievers. So you just look out at a sampling of a thousand human beings and you're going to have wheat and weeds, wheat and weeds, believers and unbelievers, just all mingled together. But in the book of Revelation, while that language is carried forward, the language of a harvest and 
believers being referred to as wheat or barley, notice in, in the end times there's an increasing separation of them. It's like you've got to take one side or the other. Now you walk through Devonshire Mall, you can't really tell the believers from the unbelievers. But in the Great Tribulation period, it'll become increasingly obvious why. It talks about marks and seals, two kingdoms. You're either following this guy or you're following this guy. Notice there's like a, a, a separation. That's, what, that's how the, the Great Tribulation is going to differ from the ongoing tribulation of our lives. The ongoing tribulation of our lives, it's an, it's an admixture of believers and unbelievers. But in the Great Tribulation, you're going to have to really stand up and be counted. It's going to be quite obvious who's who in the zoo. And now, as the wheat and the, uh, the weeds are separated, God is going to harvest them separately. So he swings his sickle and he's harvesting just the believers here. Now, how do we know that? Because in verses 17 to 20, it's a different harvest. Now, instead of using weeds here, he uses grapes. He switches the metaphor. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called out, again with a loud voice, to one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. Now this is not Jesus who's referred to as the vine. Again, metaphors can be used in different ways depending on the context. This is not Jesus the vine. That's a different usage in the Gospels. This is the vine of the earth. Its grapes refer to unbelievers. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. Let's let's talk about a wine press. In your mind, you might be thinking about some little uh, stainless steel instrument you'd buy from uh, Princess Auto or Walmart. You know, you throw a bunch of grapes in and you drop some handle and you'd squish out the juice. But the the wine presses of ancient times. Archaeologists have dug up all kinds of wine presses all over the Middle East, ancient ones. And what you need to picture is, um, is a big square area about, about the size of this room from me to, uh, to, the, to the last straight table here where Jill and Jordan and so forth are seated. So probably an area roughly like that, either squared off or rounded. And on the bottom of the wine press would be, would be a stone floor, and they would fill in the, the gaps with plaster. And in the middle of the wine press would be uh, an area, perhaps two, two by two or three by three, Look, looks like a, a, a culvert. And as they would throw all these grapes and the people would be in there stomping on them, tread, literally treading them down, the, the juice would run along the floor and it would collect in this, this basin in the middle. And then they would be able to extract the, the juice in that way and... Uh, um, uh, fermented into wine. Now, you know, obviously this would not pass, uh, you know, the FDA and all, all those sorts of organizations. You're talking about, you know, toe jam and uh, an outdoor um, floor and, you know, who knows what was in there, but the fermenting process, I suppose, took care of some of that. Uh, this isn't the kind of wine you'd be producing along Lake Erie here. 
or down in the Niagara Escarpment. But nevertheless, that's how they would uh, harvest their wine. Now, the unbelievers are described using this language of a great wine press. So they're thrown into this wine press and they are squashed by God. And then the next, Im- the next image is, is grosser yet. And the wine press was trodden outside the city and the blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle. Now, I don't care if it's a short horse or a tall horse. That's, that's a lot of blood. It uses the language of 1600 stadia. Now, a stadia is measured differently depending on the particular era. But roughly one stadia is anywhere from about 150 to 200 meters. So let's just kind of go down the middle. Let's say 175 meters multiplied by 1600. The height of a horse's bridle. So we're talking about like probably more blood than actually humanity as a whole even has in all of its, you know, all of our bodies put together. So there's a lot of blood here. But the imagery is sort of meant to to gross you out and it's meant to drive home the force of God's final cataclysmic judgment against evildoers. They are going to be crushed like grapes and there's going to be blood everywhere. So here we have two different harvests. The harvest of wheat with the sickle, Christ, and another harvest which he assigns to one of his angels. Christ is not the one that is described as swinging the sickle. It is the angel, his agent of, of, of wrath, who's swinging the sickle on his behalf. In the New Testament, angels often do the work of God. Now, I mean, God can do his own job. He can do his own work. He can finish his own tasks, but he, he chooses to uh, delegate. Uh, he dele- delegates tasks to the church. He can do a much better job by himself, but he delegates. Other times he delegates to angels. Sometimes he delegates to angels the delivery of messages. Other times he delivers to, delegates to angels the dispensement of wrath. And here, this angel is given the job of, of reaping the grapes of wrath. So very, um, a very uh, uh, judgmental passage of the Bible. Those that say, you know, God's not a God of you know, judgment. He's just really nice. Well... Uh, you better you better cut Revelation chapter fourteen out of your Bible, because it's it's pretty clear cut here. He 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 reaps some for uh, eternal righteousness, and he he reaps some for eternal uh, damnation. Okay. So any any questions about chapter fourteen before we we take a little bit of a break? Would you rather be the wheat or the grapes? <laughs> Rather be the wheat. Okay, so we'll take uh, six or seven or eight minutes here and then we'll get into the plagues of chapter 15. All right. So um, one of our students just pointed out she has the MacArthur Study Bible. That MacArthur takes the, um, the wheat as um, uh, unbelievers and... Uh, um, 
in, in the ESV study Bible, it actually says that there are, there are different views. Some people take both sets of people as believers or both sets as, as unbelievers. So it's just another example of where there's, uh, you know, different views on things. And, um, you know, the, the takeaway is not necessarily that much different. But, again, Revelation, there's, there's a lot of different perspectives, right? So we've got to handle it with a, a measure of humility, of course, MacArthur's often wrong, so. Uh, <laughs> Actually, in all honesty, in, in all honesty, I don't mind stepping out on a limb in saying that um, he is a little bit more of a pop theologian than a true theologian. He's not even educated. He has no doctorate. He's not educated as a theologian. And... Um, some of his stuff is, needs to be uh, handled carefully. Like his book, Charismatic Chaos, uh, or the Charismatics, while um, I might agree with some of his conclusions, the steps that he takes to get there are not necessarily good steps exegetically. So, you know, he's a man of God. Uh, he's to be respected. But, um, you know, he is uh, fallible in in some of his views, just like we all are, just like I am, right? So we shouldn't uh, put all of our eggs in one person's basket. We have to be a little bit careful with that. And if all you do is listen to my teaching, you have to be careful of that too, because, uh, you know, I can be misguided on things as well. So that's that, and this is being recorded. (laughs) He's older than me. I'm faster than him, so he's not going to catch me anyway. (laughs) So chapter 15 then takes us into uh, the seven plagues that are introduced, seven plagues that are introduced in the worship of God. Chapters 15 and 16 as a whole chronicle what what are called seven bowls of wrath that are poured out upon the earth, or seven cups of wrath, if you will. So these seven judgments likely represent future judgments by God upon humanity during the tribulation period. Now, as you read them, they're going to sound an awful lot like what? The ten plagues of Egypt. Not all of them, but there's a, there's a number of carryovers between the, se- the language of the seven plagues and the language of the ten plagues of Egypt. Now, they also encompass the, what is typically known as the Battle of Armageddon. And we will talk about that. The Battle of Armageddon, which is mentioned during the sixth bowl of wrath. So here we are in chapter 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Here now we are going to see that kind of language come up. It is done, it is done, or finished kind of language. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Again, mixed images. Sea, a little bit scary in the mind of a land-loving people like the Jews. Glass, that's comforting because it's calm. Fire, that's terrifying again. So we have a mixture of safe and not-so-safe metaphors here and 
also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God on their hands. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O God, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So this is a song of worship that's being sung here. And, uh, you know, the language of it sounds an awful lot like the the songs that we sing. I mean, the songs that we sing in our church have this kind of language in it. You know, the righteous acts of God, God alone being holy, people coming to worship him. It's, it's very, uh, uh, you know, very understandable language. After this, I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. The... The idea of uh, dress is fairly important in Revelation. So the believer is described as one who is wearing a a white tunic. Uh, Crowns are mentioned, another form of attire. Here we have bright linen, golden sashes. So these are royal creatures. One of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls uh, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God. So here we have... uh, imagery that sounds like um, the tabernacle or the temple, the Holy of Holies. We have a, a, a location where God is manifesting his glory, and we have smoke and, and uh, that kind of imagery, probably reference to uh, prayers or incense, uh, from the glory of God and from his pow- power, and no one could ever enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So as with the previous sets, we've already encountered seven seals and seven trumpets. When we look at the seven seals, there's a parenthesis between the sixth and the seventh seal. There's a pause. When we looked at the seven trumpets, there's a parenthesis between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. There's a pause. Now we're going to have the seven bowls of wrath, and there's a parenthesis between the sixth and the seventh bowl of wrath, where it tells us a little bit about, a little bit more information about uh this battle known as the Battle of Armageddon. The smoke of the glory of God, again, sounds similar to the holy place of the temple where God's presence is dwelt, where God's presence dwelt in such purity that one would die there if they did not enter it carefully. If you think back to the Old Testament, the tabernacle itself was supposed to be like a sort of a miniature model of the glory of God in heaven. And so there's a a really holy place, a place around that, and then a place around that, and there's different furnishings that are used for worship, and there's smoke, and there's presents, and there's rules as to how you approach God, and there's embroidered curtains, and just a lot of fabulous uh, items in in the tabernacle or later in the temple. And then when you get into Revelation, and you read about John's vision of heaven, you can kind of you know, in a sense, see that the the tabernacle and the temple are, in fact, like itsy-bitsy, tiny, teeny versions, in a sense, of heaven's glory. Same kind of imagery, but on a much grander scale. Worshippers and noise and altars and smoke and curtains being opened. 
and tents of witness and sanctuary language and all that kind of stuff. And it, it helps us to appreciate the holiness of God and gives us a little bit of a glimpse as to what uh, heaven might, might be like. And that's why even today, Orthodox Jews find that the location where the, the last temple stood is a holy place. Uh, it's, a, it's a place of significance for them because, you know, the Wailing Wall, upper portion of one of the walls surrounding the Temple Mount is connected to a holy place, supposed to be a symbol of, of heaven on earth. How many of you have ever been up on the Temple Mount? Glenn, Marilyn, Eric, you were up on it. Uh, Susie and I were there, but she wasn't allowed to go because she was wearing shorts. We didn't know this. I was allowed to go even though I was wearing shorts. So we came up the ramp, and she had to hang out with an Israeli soldier for 20 or 30 minutes because she was dressed immodestly, my wife. And I got to wander around the, the Temple Mount and see the mosque and the two mosques up there. No, no, she didn't. She was a little, I think, a little nervous to go out there. But, um, yeah, that, that's the location of the, you know, the, the, last, uh, the last temple. And on the side of that is the Wailing Wall. You've probably seen it. You know, the Jews stick a little piece of... That's just the upper part of the wall. There's probably, what, Glenn, 30, 40 feet uh, yeah, below it? Actually, they got it all related to it. You've got to go down, like, through a tunnel and... Uh, when you walk down the tunnel, you go through the, all these rooms. But the, the idea is, is that the, the wall would have been, let's say, yay high in the time of Christ. And, you know, they would, they would because buildings there are made of like stone and equivalent of cement and whatnot, very solid. So instead of tearing them down and building new buildings, they just build on top. So you have about 30 feet or so, if I remember, of, of uh, old structures covering up the whole bottom half of the wall. So when you see the wailing wall on pictures, it's just the top part. So you're, you're right. You can go down. We did a little tour. You kind of go down through these old tunnels and you can get down to the bottom of the wall. And some of these stones on the wall are just, man, I, I'm going to guess from that trim to the top and from that corner, probably back to where James is sitting, you'd have blocks that were hewn out in the wall. Some of them are like that big, huge. But um, anyway, the uh, the site on top is where the the, the second temple would have stood, um, and still revered by uh, by Jews today as a holy place because it's supposed to sim- the the, uh, the elements of it are supposed to symbolize uh, heaven. Actually, not that big. You know, the, the temple wasn't really that big, but it was it was considered a holy place. And now we have the the dome of the rock built there um, on top of it. So. Yeah, um, and then we have the seven bowls of wrath. So God comes, he, he is glorified, we're introduced to this angel, and then he sends the angel out. So in chapter 16 then, then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Some of these bowls affect the land, some of them affect the seas, some of them affect the cosmos. The first one is a, uh, we'll just call it the, the sores. 
So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. So what does this sound like? What, what Egyptian plague? The boils. The plague of boils. So this one is directed toward the earth. The second one, the second and third one are much alike. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. So what does this sound a lot like? The first plague where the, the Nile River is turned to blood. And then there's the third third one here. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. So all the water, standing water, spouting water, salt water, it's all it's all ruined. It's useless. And obviously the people back then, just as we do today, understood the importance of water for, for all of life. And it's, it's devastated. Then I heard an angel in charge of the waters. Now that's interesting, isn't it? He's in charge of the waters. It almost kind of makes you, it makes me want to ask questions. Like, do angels have assignments? Is there like an angel of the oak trees? An angel of uh, cats? I don't know, like an angel of, you know, mountains. You know, that's like, do they have little assignments? Uh, who knows? But this one either eternally or at least immediately is in charge of, of the waters. It says, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. I want you to notice that sprinkled throughout these heavenly visions is constant worship of the triune eternal God over and over and over and over again. And that's why I've often said when I've, when I've taught on or alluded to Revelation that the book of Revelation is, is not primarily intended to drive into your head a timeline. That's not its primary primary focus but that is where most people want to focus because it's interesting it is interesting admittedly it is interesting but the primary focus of the book of revelation seems to seems to be to drive us into the worship of the one true god and that's why it is a timeless book it is a timeless book and it can be used by all millennialists and post-millennialists and pre-millennialists and pre-tribbers and post-tribbers anybody who knows god and wants to learn how to worship him uh, revelation can serve you well so keep that in mind. The primary focus is the worship of the one true God. Secondary is figuring out the specifics of how things are going to unfold. Now, why is God bringing judgment? Because they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. So this would be new covenant and old covenant language. So who are the saints? That's, that's more new covenant language. Believers in Jesus Christ. Prophets, that's more old covenant language, the believers of the old covenant. And I have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. So here we have the justice, the judgmental side of God coming through. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now, who in the world is saying this? Where do we meet them? Way back, what, chapter four or five? The martyrs under the altar, what was their complaint? Yeah, when are you going to finally avenge uh, our, our blood? And here is where it happens. So it would, clear, it would clearly seem that the, the events are somewhat lined up, that the, the, 
the events of the martyrs under the altar comes before this. It's just a, a random sampling of events that are all intermixed. There's, there's some sequence here. There's some flow of events. God is now avenging them. And we learn about God's justice, or we're reminded of God's justice. We're also reminded about God's holiness. He judges out of a sense of justice. So justice, while it is part and parcel of God's character, is always connected to those who need to be recipients of justice. So the downtrodden or the widow, the orphan in the social context or in a spiritual context, the church or prophets of old. So God manifests this aspect of justice in the presence of the created. Now, was God just before there was anything else created? Yes. But one could argue he didn't have, a, he didn't have the opportunity, in a sense, to manifest his justice outwardly until there were created beings around. So God now manifests his justice by cutting down those that have killed the, the martyrs and making them to drink the blood of the martyrs. I'm not sure if this is literally what they're going to be doing, but it, it, it communicates a sense of uh, justice nevertheless. And then God's holiness, of course, is not dependent upon us. God's holiness just is. God can be holy unto himself. He doesn't need us here to manifest his holiness. He can manifest it in and of his own triune self. The um, Just one other comment I'll make about this passage with regard to the, the bloody waters. If you think back to chapter 11, that's what the two witnesses did as well. They, were, they had the power to turn the water into blood, it says. So both with the Egyptian events, the two martyrs, and now at the end, same kind of language of waters being turned into blood. This obviously was sort of a timeless um, picture of woe. It would have stirred fear uh, in the heart of an evildoer. It obviously scared uh, Pharaoh. Uh, it, uh, it scared the, the, those that were watching the two witnesses, and it's, it, it's scary for people to read about even today again because they would have understood the significance of, of, uh, of water and its value. Uh, for survival. The fourth one is uh, the sun. And this stems from a lack of repentance. So the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire and they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Even in our generation, there is a lot of fear about the uh, the stability of the sun. So there's a lot of conversation about global warming. Uh, you know, the ozone breaks down and we're exposed to the sun. Uh, you'll you'll read articles in Science about the sun in however many million or trillion or billion years or whatever burning out. That it won't last forever. Uh, even today, there's this acknowledgement of the importance of the sun to life. And this understanding that if the sun changes ever so slightly, it could be catastrophic. Well, in the end, the sun will be affected, but it will not be affected by uh, simply as a result of uh, bad, bad management on our behalf. 
or you know, using too much hairspray. Do people? I don't even know if people use hairspray anymore, but uh, they do. They do. Okay. Um, but it comes in pump bottles, right? You use it, Glenn. Okay, Glenn. Glenn has shares in uh, whatever the hairspray company. I prefer paste myself. But the uh, the um, the sun will ultimately scorch the earth because God um, God allows it to. God causes it to. Now, this is not to be taken as, well, let's just ruin our planet then because God, no, let's not be dumb. But uh, at the end of the day, it's not going to be that it runs out of fuel or that our ozone layer is going to collapse because we use too much hairspray. It's going to be God. So here we have, here we have judgment expanding. So if you look back, if you look back, it starts out with people. So first we have source. Then it goes out from there to the sea, out to fresh water. It seems like there's a kind of each plague is sort of getting worse. Now it's affecting the cosmos, the very universe itself. If you read Romans chapter 8, verse 19, it talks about creation itself groaning under sin. Oftentimes when we talk about the consequences of sin, we tend to focus on the human condition. But in actual fact, the fall of man had catastrophic effects across the board on animal life, plant life, ecosystems, and the cosmos itself. And so all of the cosmos now is starting to be affected by sin. And here it sort of reaches its zenith. Then we move into sort of a spi- the spiritual realm. And the next bowl of God's wrath is poured out on the throne of the beast. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And its kingdom was plunged into darkness. And then it says people nod their tongues in anguish. Normal people don't do that. This is almost like imagery from an asylum. They're gnawing at their tongues in anguish. But they do not repent. This is what is sad about the human condition, is that even in the face of imminent judgment, there's still a shaking of our little fists at God. The cosmos is burning out, or burning us up. The the water has turned to blood, but they're not turning to God. This is why you can never talk someone into the kingdom. Because there's something in the human nature that is just, at the end, opposed to the things of God vehemently. So they curse God of heaven for their pain and sorrow. So instead of interpreting it as God's judgment, they curse God for it. But then it says, in even stronger language, they did not repent of their deeds. So it's, it's, it's a sad uh, commentary on the state of uh, humanity. Here we have God focusing his judgment on what we could call the centerpiece of the dominion of darkness, the throne of the beast. Unlikely an actual chair that he's sitting on, maybe, maybe not, but the throne of the beast, the centerpiece of the kingdom of darkness now experiences the wrath of God. And yet even in the midst of this judgment, they curse and they refuse to repent. Symptomatic of evil's Blindness and rebellion against the one true and living God. Now we have the sixth 
bowl of wrath. The sixth angel pours out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up. The question then is, wh why, why this plague? I mean, I thought you already sort of took care of all the waters. You've turned them to blood. Who cares about the river Euphrates? Why dry up the river Euphrates? Why would he dry it up? Garden of Eden? Yep. Yep, so the Tigris and Euphrates come out of the same river and, and flow back. So people, Eden, it says Eden was between them, so there's two places, top or bottom. They're several hundreds of kilometers apart. But why would you dry it up, Glenn? Okay. Yeah. Yes. So we're not talking about jet fighters and pontoon bridges and all that. Geography was much more important to war back then than it is today. I mean, it's still important today, but it's more important. So that body of water separated the Eastern nations from the Semitic peoples. So the drying up of that body of water allows those eastern nations then to advance towards Jerusalem. But I think there's another, there's another uh, point to be made of this, and that is that on the other side of the Euphrates was ancient Babylon. And Babylon relied upon the river Euphrates to protect it from enemies advancing into their territory. And so I, I, I'm wondering if in this text, the, the drying up of Euphrates not only opens the door for the eastern armies to advance towards Jericho or Jerusalem, but it also communicates that the defenses of Babylon have been fully eroded. So here we have the sixth plague. Now there's a parenthesis. So the, the eastern front is opened up. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, who's the dragon? Satan. Satan. Out of the mouth of the beast, who's the beast? Probably the Antichrist. Out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Like frogs. Who are these spirits? Probably demonic beings of some sort. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world. So this is some sort of a, a global uh, phenomenon. To assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeps his garments on, that he may uh, not go about naked and be exposed. Now, in the, in the English Bible, there's, uh, there's quotations there because that is intended to sort of be a, an, an exclamatory comment made by John or uh, the, the, the martyrs or some heavenly being or, or someone who's worshiping God or God himself to sort of highlight the fact that you need to be prepared. And they assembled at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So frogs symbolize demonic beings coming from what were previously identified by us as you know, beast one and beast two, the antichrist and the false prophet. They are liars. What comes out of their mouths are lies. 
they assemble the godless to advance against God's people and by default against God's purposes. So when you, when you advance against God's people, you also are advancing against God's purposes. So there's the horizontal and the heavenly here. Now this could, this could be very well uh, a literal army. It doesn't need to be a literal army to still communicate that evil advances against God's people and God's purposes. Um, but this, this event, if it is indeed to be taken as a singular event or a cluster of events taking place in and around the same time, uh, illustrates or is meant to communicate sort of the, the, the zenith of uh, evil's rise against God. So this is, we're coming now to like the, the crescendo moment, the, the climax of evil's attacks against God and his people and his purposes. And this uh, event is called the great day of God. Now, the day, the la- this language, the day of the Lord, the, uh, the day of God's wrath, the day of the Almighty, this is also Old Testament. The writer, the writer John is heavily reliant upon Old Testament imagery and language. And what do we know about day of the Lord language? What is, when the prophet spoke of the day of the Lord, all through the prophets, this language comes up. What were they referring to? Okay, in, in part, they were referring to the second coming. That he was going to act. Now, is the day of the Lord throughout the Bible one day? What is it? It's a series of days. Oftentimes, when God would judge, that would be called the day of the Lord. It's, it's the, it's singular grammatically, but... The day of the Lord was, uh, you know, God conquering Babylon and releasing his people. The day of the Lord was God conquering uh, uh, the, the, the Greeks as the Maccabees revolted. The, the day of the Lord is, is the Christ event. The day of the Lord is the resurrection. There's, there's multiple days of the Lord, but there's also a sense in all of these that whatever these, these days of the Lord are, they all are forerunners of the ultimate day of the Lord, which is eschatological. And that is the day that is being referred to here where all evil is going to sort of come to uh, a particular place, a particular point, and try to take down the things of God. We need to understand a little bit about Armageddon in order to sort of uh, 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 understand this um, uh, as, as best as we can. So Armageddon, Armageddon is a Greek translation of the the word Megiddo. Megiddo. So this is the Hebrew. And Megiddo is both a city, or I should say was a city, and it's a, a, a plains, the, the plains of Megiddo. Now, the city today is what's known as a tell. So uh, a tell, you know, you got Tel Aviv. A tell is a, um, a building up of various cities that have been 
you know, several layers of cities that have been uh, built and broken down, built and broken down, built and broken down, built and broken down. Some of, some of the tells in Israel are like 30 cities deep. So they're elevated. That's so many times they've been ransacked and broken down. And the whole idea of, uh, do you remember like when uh, God's warriors went to war in Canaan and God said like, D- devote everything to a band, destroy it all, and Achan hid some stuff? There was, there was a mindset among ancient Near Eastern people, including the Jews, but not limited to the Jews, that when you conquered a nation, you destroyed everything. You wiped out their memory. Why? Because the blessings of God were always tied to land, fertility, very tangible. So when you wipe them out, you didn't just you know, adopt their children, adopt their sheep, take over their houses. You wiped everything out and just broke them right down. So that's why... In Israel, you, you would just probably never find this in North America. If someone came in and wiped us out, they would just you know, start living in our houses and take over our buildings and drive our cars. But they would wipe everything out, and so you have these tells that are built up. So Megiddo is a tell in northern Israel, about 40 kilometers out from uh, the Sea of Galilee. And out from it is a massive plains area known as the Plains of Megiddo. Now this area of the country happened to be the site of multiple historic battles as people traveled from south to north, south to north, or north to south. You just kind of had to go through the plains of Megiddo and you'd, you'd end up getting into a fight with somebody. So the plains of Megiddo and Armageddon in the Greek were, was known or is, is known by archaeologists and historians as a place of, of battle. So what better place then to, for God to draw upon to... Uh, point to like a a cataclysmic battle. So what God might be doing here is he might just be drawing the imagery out. And, you know, whether there's a battle literally on that turf or not, probably doesn't matter a whole lot, but there's going to be some sort of a a battle in that vicinity. And it's going to be a cataclysmic battle where the kings of the East, where the world system will rise up against the things of God. And again, you know, in the old days, I probably would have been more concerned about nailing this down. You know, it's literal, it's in that place. Okay, fine, maybe it is. Doesn't make that much of a difference to me. This is one of the few times when something theological doesn't make that much of a difference to me. Uh, because I'm just not sure. I'm not sure how this is necessarily to be taken. So it could be taken as a literal battle on that turf, or it could be taken as as a reference to a spiritual battle. Nevertheless, the constraints are are gone. The Euphrates River is gone. The gloves are off. And the world system advances against the things of God represented in Zion, in Jerusalem. So that's our parentheses. And then we have a seventh judgment. And this is where it all comes to a crashing halt. There's there's not going to be much more fighting after this. The seventh angel poured out his bowl in the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. I don't want to put words in God's mouth, but as soon as I read that, I thought of the cross. It is finished. It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. And again, Temples torn, the earth shakes, there's darkness, 
it sounds a lot like crucifixion, but, but taken to a whole new level, the crucifixion event. The great city, that would be Jerusalem, is split into three parts. So it's, uh, if, you're, if, uh, if you go to Israel today and you go into Jerusalem, you'll find it's a decent-sized city. But if you go into the old city, the Jerusalem of, of, the Bi- of the Bible, Mount Zion, of course the walls are being moved around. The place where Jesus was crucified is now in, way inside the city, inside of a church. But nevertheless, that general area is built on a big flat rock. So all under, all under uh, 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 Mount Zion is just one big hunk of rock. And this earthquake, it says, splits it into three pieces. And the great city was split. And then it says the cities of the nations fell. So, you know, there goes Vancouver, there goes Toronto, there goes L.A., there goes Shanghai, you know, Kathmandu. They're all gone. They're all broken down. And God remembered Babylon the Great. So the symbolic of those who are opposed to the things of God. To make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away. Later in Revelation, we'll talk about the sun, the moon, the stars fleeing from God. Well, here we have the islands. They're, I mean, they're inanimate objects, but they're described as running from God. And no mountains were to be found, so they're flattened. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven uh, on people. And again, what does it say? What's their response? And they cursed God for the plague of hail because the plague was so severe. They're still not repentance. Now, the, the language it is done, by the way, is also, uh, also pops up again in chapter 21. And it is a pronouncement of finality by God of his judgment. Chapter 21, verse 6, if you want to look it up. The, uh, the world is entirely wiped out. Like everybody, everybody is, uh, everything is flattened. And this now brings us into the, the beginning stages of the, the annihilation of the first heaven and the first earth in preparation uh, for the final one. So later in uh, the book of Revelation, uh, we're going to read about the destruction of the first heaven and the first earth and the uh, bringing about of the second, uh, the new heavens and the new earth. So the, the heavenly vision for the Christian, you know, it's, it's okay to say um, if you're just trying to use simple language, we go to heaven or hell. That's fine. But if you want to be accurate, it's not actually fully true. Because hell is a bit more of an ambiguous word, which can refer to the grave or the abode of Satan or the abode of the unrighteous dead. And heaven is sort of, you know, the, the, the abode of God. But in the end times, God's plan is not that we spend eternity in hell or heaven, but hell becomes engulfed in what is known as the lake of fire later on in Revelation. And we come back from heaven and God recreates. It's like Garden of Eden all over again on steroids. And we live out the rest of eternity on the new heavens and the new earth. So we become embodied beings 
uh, it is described differently than the first Garden of Eden. There's, there's multiple trees of life. There's, uh, there's gold streets and so forth. But essentially, it's, it's back to Eden on steroids. And the, for the rest of eternity, when I say rest, I mean, that's a time word. For eternity, we, we are embodied beings in the new heavens and the new earth. But before the new heavens and the new earth, the old order is going to be wiped out. Romans 8, 19, all creation groans. So all creation, the, the, like dirt itself is cursed. So it's all going to be wiped out. All the stars, this massive universe, we don't even know how big it is, is going to be wiped out. And God will recreate a new world for us to, to dwell in for eternity. So this just kind of brings us onto the, the doorstep, the threshold of that event. As, as the new heavens, the new, or the old heavens, the new earth begin to disintegrate. Uh, all because one man and one woman rebelled against God in the beginning. This is the, the, the ultimate consequence uh, of all of that. So any, any final questions before we... Uh, I d- there's one other thing we have to do tonight, but any other further questions about the... Um, the the text we've looked at this evening. Yeah. Just leading up to the flood um, and what happened there and, and the cancellation of creation because God was so angry at this thought. Is this then the second? It can't be a flood. You can't even do that. Yeah. So we have to come up with something new. Yeah. You know what? Um, yes, I think in a sense you're right because time and time again in the Bible we have the smaller leading to the larger, or this foreshadowing that. So we have lambs foreshadowing Christ. We have a flood foreshadowing the ultimate destruction. We have one temple foreshadowing a heavenly temple. We have uh, one Eden foreshadowing another Eden. Uh, the, the Bible, that's, that's the way you got You got to learn to read the Bible that way. Don't, don't look for things that aren't there. But this general idea of one event foreshadowing Another event is, uh, is strewn throughout the pages of Scripture. Cindy first, did you have a comment? Co- I just was thinking, like, when, um, it says the new heaven and the new earth, right now we have heaven and the third heaven, mm. and what he's seen in the earth where we're at now, and when it's a new heaven and new earth, and they're all coming down, is the heaven going to be on the earth? Yes. Yeah, the... Okay, well, that's, that's a I- very interesting question. Is the heaven going to be on the earth? It's one and the same because the full presence of God is going to be where we are. So there's no, there's no longer an eternal divide. It's not like God's hanging out with us Monday to Friday. It's like, yeah, I'm going off to heaven. There's no division between the two. It's, you know, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but the fullness of God, God will reign on the, you know, the, uh, on His throne, and it'll be like a, a perfect blend of like Eden and heaven, you could say, all at once. You know, if sin had never happened, I'm not sure that humans would have the concept of heaven, because the f- they would have been so intimate with God, the fullness of God was with them to such a degree that there would have been no notion of. God separated from them. So really, without sin, one could argue one could not even conceptually understand heaven. But because there is sin now, and this world is corrupt, and God's abode isn't, 
there's a there's a notion of a divide. Yeah, Adela. Yes. Yes. But the Battle of Armageddon comes at the very end. Yeah. Okay.